Welcome to the Risk and Accounting Advisory Podcast. I'm Nate Regimbal, Digital Advisory Leader at Cherry Beckert. And today on the Risk in Review Podcast, we pick up the second part of our series discussing AML model validation and optimization. With me today is Sam Hallaby, leader in our risk and data analytics practice, and Dan Gallagher, a leader in our information assurance and cybersecurity practice. In this series, we unpack insights into the importance of using a methodology, data capture, and execution within the context of AML optimization and validation. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how to conduct AML model testing. Last time, we discussed the significance of having a validation and optimization methodology for AML models. So if you missed that episode, be sure to check it out at cbh.com forward slash podcasts. Dan and Sam, thank you both for joining me today. Let's jump right in. Dan, could you share with us a good approach to conducting model testing? Of course. First, it's important to understand that model testing is a critical step to ensure that your AML application is providing you with the most effective alerting possible. It should be conducted in two distinct phases, initial setup and model validation. Thanks, Dan. Then let's start at the beginning. What should financial institutions focus on during the initial setup phase? During the initial setup phase, it's important financial institutions to invest significant effort in ensuring that the model and rules are adequately designed to address the specific risk and activities of the institution. This involves working closely with the vendor and performing parallel monitoring where both manual monitoring and the AML model are used to identify suspicious activity. It's also helpful to conduct pre and post implementation reviews to ensure that the model and rules are set up correctly from the beginning. Thank you. What should the focus be for the model validation phase? Once the AML application has matured, it's recommended to conduct a model validation. This is normally around the six month timeframe. Additionally, model validations should be performed whenever major changes occur within the financial institution, and these can include mergers, new product introductions, or system conversions. During the model validation, there are two primary testing areas to consider. Data imported from the core banking application or other feeder systems to the AML application and the alert rule setup and output. Could you elaborate on the specific aspects to consider in each testing area? For sure. In terms of data validation, it's important to test the integrity and accuracy of the data imported from the core banking application into the AML application. This includes reviewing mapping of transaction activity and ensuring that all relevant transactions are present. Now, some institutions may have certain transactions such as fees or ACH pre-notifications that may not be considered true transactions and therefore may not be mapped. For alert validations, it's crucial to review the alert setup, ensuring that it aligns with the institution's size, risk, and transactional activity. It's also important to examine the alert output over an extended period of time to verify that the rules are firing appropriately based on the defined rule set and sample transactions. Additionally, a sample of institution alert review should be reviewed to ensure proper steps are taken for cases and proper note taking to close out alerts. Procedures related to changes in alerts should also be addressed. Thanks, Dan. 
well, there's a fair amount involved here. Are there any other testing steps involved? Yes. In addition to the primary testing areas, it's important to conduct further tests during the validation process. This includes reviewing user access, the change management process around alert configurations, high-risk customers, and the policies and procedures in place to ensure the model is adequately monitored and maintained. By following this two-level approach, financial institutions can ensure that their data and alerting systems are adequately set up during the initial phase and that periodic testing is conducted to ensure the most valuable AML monitoring possible. Dan, thank you. Sam, can you describe the additional ongoing monitoring processes and their importance, please? Certainly, Nate. Um, ongoing pro monitoring processes are very important, and they play a crucial role in maintaining the effectiveness of, of the model. Specifically, they need to reconfirm the purpose within the context of the current business activity, as well as understand the model's effectiveness. Let me go back to reconfirming the purpose. But reconfirming the purpose means, you know, the model has a purpose. So it means that um, you always have to ask, are the rules that we have still valid for our operation? Remember, business operation is seasonal, it changes, uh, you know, new, new, new customers, new profiles, all of that. So we'll give you a very good example. The advent of cannabis banking, um, there's a lot more that you see, do you see higher cash transactions? That may be normal for those cannabis customers, but it may not be for your traditional customers. So you'll be catching, you know, your models will be catching a lot of cannabis transactions and, you know, kind of lead to a lot of false positives. So you have to ask yourself, you know, are these rules still effective to match my customer profile? The other piece is understanding the model's effectiveness. And again, AML detection doesn't end where the alert kind of starts where the alert is, because once an alert is triggered, it has to be cleared. And investigative resources have to be put against it, and those can become overwhelmed by the clearing process. We see a lot of banks, uh, they set the models to kind of a medium severity to catch because, you know, uh, from a regulatory perspective, they don't want to be they'd rather err in the caution of, uh, you know, of, of being conservative. So they will catch a lot more items than, uh, than, 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 than they should, and they become a lot of, they become false positives. But as, as you catch them, you have to investigate them. And if you don't clear them on time, you know, certain actions could, could adversely affect the customer relationship. Some banks have an SLA of X number of days to clear an item. And if they don't, they may have to shut an account, regardless whether it's a true alert, you know, so it, it, it reflects suspicious activity or it doesn't. So management has to continue to ask. Let's understand why there are so many false positives and reflect back on our model rules, et cetera. The idea here is to detect what we need to detect. Got to minimize the false positives, but not so much increase the risk of misdetections and suspicious activity. Thank you, Sam. That was a very helpful and great overview of, let's call it the why. But let's move on to the next logical step, the, the what and the how. How are these periodic reviews performed? Yeah, that's, uh, Nate, 
that's where things become a little bit tricky to our clients. Uh, not how often they have to review it. That's an easy thing. That's a compliance matter, right? And whether you are, and, and it's and depending on your regulator, it, it kind of uh, uh, set the timeline for you. But the idea is that we where it becomes tricky. It's where we have to seek an optimal balance for accurate detection. At the same time, you want to be able to reduce the false positives. Not easy. And most choose to, like I said earlier, most choose to err on the side of false positives because the risk of something being missed, it's a lot higher than putting a lot of investigative resources against many false positives. We recommend as an initial step uh, of the model's performance to assess the detection rules effectiveness against the alert dispositions to possibly possibly, and I say that, fine-tune the thresholds and parameters. And we'll get into the thresholds and parameters a little later because there are some when we speak about limitations. But for now, what we the, the objectives of the what needs to happen is you have to organize the outcomes of your alerts and run some statistical methods to determine the density and variance to learn more about what is causing and at those uh, alerts and what and where are they originating if you do this right this step will really help uh you learn and help you provide a perspective on what how to adjust the model's rules as well as the parameters and we'll get into examples a little later on this the second item here is to once you excuse me once you figure out those adjustments um, you want to backtest the results. So you have to say, well, you know, <clears throat> let me see if I need to uh, adjust my uh, my parameters to kind of test to see, uh, you know, what do I catch between $10,000 and $14,000? And because my rule says, give me anything over $10,000. But you're not catching anything. You've ran these models for years. You haven't caught anything with this rule but you're producing a lot of false positives. So you assume, let me just step through it. Let me go through 10,000, 11,000, 12,000, 13,000, 14,000, and see what the volumes of detection are and see if actually did I detect any suspicious activity. So these are called what we call incremental parameter changes. And uh, this way you'll be able to understand, look, I can move a threshold, uh, my parameter up to, you know, $5,000, you know, up, up another $5,000, I can uh, for for transaction, and I can still detect the same suspicious activity that have, I have detected in the past, but I have produced a lot, many less false positives. So once you determine what those parameters should be, then you'll have to work with the compliance team as well as the IT management and as as well as uh, model management to uh, figure out and be able to introduce those changes within the auspices of the model governance and change procedures. Thank you, Sam. That was helpful for me to really see the marriage between the model sensitivity based on how you configure the technology and finding the sweet spot within the organization on where you want to sit on the risk continuum. Uh, also balanced, again, how many, uh, balanced against how many false positives you are comfortable uh, dispositioning. Sam, what are the key limitations? How do we solve these problems? The elements of AML all seem so tied together. Nate, spot on. 
all of these are tied together because of because suspicious activity that detection it's sensitive to technical data and operational factor and i'd like to address them address them individual technical limitations i want to focus here on the assumption that you did not build your own model only a handful of institutions have been able to do that because that's highly complex and if you haven't built your own model you're most likely using one of the many available commercial platform models and as you would expect, those models vary on analy in analytical methods, assumptions, and the user's ability to configure the model to better align with their customers' profiles and the customer's activity. On the data limitation side, Nate, I believe our audience is highly familiar with the basic tense of data quality, so I won't belabor the definitions. But a typical scenario that we see is data entered in the wrong place on a transaction report. Could be a country name in the address field, could be a note in the second address field, could be a, a beneficiary's name and some comment field. So the model, it'd be nice for the model to just look to where those trigger words could be, but they can't. So you have to basically look everywhere. And looking everywhere, you end up finding detect you, you end up detecting uh, trigger words everywhere, and this will increase your hits and false positives. So this, so the models get forced to, when you force the model to look at all fees with nat natural results and a lot more innocuous uh, hits. We've seen examples where um, the word uppers or the word uh, reefer is usually uh, a trigger word, but you're catching any transaction that has an address possibly on the upper east side or you're trying anything that has the word reference in it that's being caught is being caught because it sounds like close enough to refer so this is one of the literally many hundreds where dirty data, data dirty data leads to false positives dirty or misaligned data is equal to high cost and waste there is real roi in getting your data estate cleaned up especially in banking and financial service the third tenant here or pillar or category is your operational limits. This really gets, it refers you to the team that investigates the alerts because every single alert that is raised has to be cleared. And this is, there's a lot of heavy lifting here because it is, you have humans in the loop. And it boils down to resources who review the cases, you review the data and disposition them as a true or false positive utilizing expert judgment. All this must happen within a short period of time because you have SLAs. Breaching the SLA could have detrimental consequences from both the regulatory perspective as well as customers. Imagine you close a customer's account because you just didn't have time to review. You didn't have time to review the work. So this overall operation of technology, data, and process, it truly hinges upon data quality and currency of the business rules. Uh, both of which need to be aligned to your business model. So there's very much a cascading effect and there's work involved in keeping it current, in balance, harmonized, and of course, to try to stay out in front of emerging threats. So Sam, thank you. Uh, that was really helpful. Thank you for simplifying that. Um, certainly not easy to take a complicated topic and, and net it out like that. So thank you. Let's get more forward looking. So uh, as you know, I've personally got a background in artificial intelligence, uh, which is no longer emergent technology. It's it's now mainstream. 
and it can be easily incorporated into enterprise workflows and applications. So Sam, can you tell me more about what clients are asking us or asking us to help them solve? Yes, indeed, Nate. Yes, indeed. I'd like to refer back to the three pillars we've discussed, the technical, data, and operational pillars um, that, uh, that, that, that cause the limitation of, of our models. So we're working with clients on, on each of these areas. Again, they're all interrelated. On the technical side, you want to look for better detection through more advanced techniques using AI and machine learning. However, you're limited to what you can do in the detection on the alerting side because of who owns the model and the guts of the, the model. So I guess, like I said, unless you built your own model, you have limitations here. The big vendors keep those rules internal. So if you're using FIS or Verifin or Jack Henry or Yellowhammer or Furco or any type of these, you know, all these rules are going to be internal, these detection rules. But what we can do is apply machine learning to the cases generated out of those systems. So post alert, we can do some things and apply metrics, if you would like, if you will, to the likelihood that the false positive are truly false. So what are we saying here? is that the system can blow the whistle, but we can help the clients set up an instant replay. So on the technical side, we're being asked by clients to integrate into their systems to streamline things on the operational side, which I'll touch on in a moment. On the data side, as with any other data-driven application, you must pay attention to various aspects of data quality, always, starting with data hygiene. This involves ensuring that the data is accurate, complete, consistent, and is in positional alignment to the right attributes. What that means is that you have a name and a, a name attribute, you put a name in there. If you have an address attribute, you have an address attribute. So can't be 100% perfect, but the closer you are to perfection, the, the more you are to streamlining your operation. And this is where model and data governance cover that scope. On the operational side, there's a lot of funky stuff that we can do. Well, I don't call it funky, but we call it fun. So there is, because there is a limited ability to control the models, as I said earlier, and the analytics of the models, this is where relief can be provided. Our area of focus with the client and in our own solution strategy is an advancing me methods to optimize and continu continually improve the uh, investigative process. As just mentioned, we can integrate the client system and use technologies like RPA to take a lot of time out of the alert triage. So, Sam, thanks. Uh, that is a big focus area for me uh, within our team working on automation solutions. So can you talk a little bit more about RPA and driving efficiencies using technology? Absolutely. I like to call it smart automation, right? Um, so the whole idea is that following an alert, investigative resources must go out and collect relevant data from various systems. Those could be internal data, those could ranging from the transaction data to the customer profile to any type of history, as well as external data. You can go out to LexisNexis, you can go out to Google, see if there's any alerts, any uh, on, on, or see if this customer got on a watch list for some reason, right? And ultimately you got a package and present it as part of a uh, as part of a organized document, RPA can do that. 
RPA can go out and get all that data and package it and put it in a document that is basically uh, that is basically ready for investigative. And it can go a bit further. So it can actually even provide based on the history and based on the client and based on uh, what it finds as it scrubs uh, certain resources, it can give you a likelihood of the alert pointing to a suspicious activity or a false positive. So these are the kind of things that we're kind of focused on. No, very cool. Um, yeah, great, great example using RPA to automate the tasks and then putting some sort of analytics in line to take a look at the content that was just assembled by the RPA and uh, perform some sort of analysis on it to give an indication to the people who are going to be receiving that downstream. So that's really cool. Yeah. And again, the idea here is really, look, if you can't do much about your model and what it's and, and the guts and the analytics, because one, you know, because it's a skill set that is uh, that is very special and you can't really, you know, open these models, um, then that piece can save you a ton of time going into the RPA and going into uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, being able to do some smart automation. For example, if you take one of our smaller clients, which can manage, they can manage over 2,000 false, false positive alerts a month. Think about it. You have to clear everyone. Every single alert has to be cleared, which means that you're going to have, and that, that consumes maybe one to two hours per case. And that's over 10 FTEs per month for trying to clear mostly false positive alerts. If you can use RPA and cut down those hours to minutes, you've optimized, you've taken a, a fresh load off your resources, and you can uh, repurpose your resources to do more interesting stuff within compliance. Our expertise in process industry technology can allow, can enable us to reduce significant amounts of time for the client. So thanks, Sam. Um, this really does look like a strong artificial intelligence and machine learning use case. So not only on analyzing each case, as we had discussed, you know, around um, the RPA bots had fetched the content as part of preparing the case file, the case record that would be analyzed following the alert, but then even taking the investigator's dispositioning of that case, taking that feedback, you know, uh, yes, this was an actual signal that we care about or no, this was a false positive and incorporating that positive feedback from the human in the loop to train or help improve a model. So at the end of this, the, the ultimate outcome is to flag cases as being more likely a real alert than a false positive. And you, know, you, you, you won't necessarily uh, disposition things uh, without a human in the loop, but at minimum, using this technology, you can help them prioritize you know, their operational workload, where they start, if you will. Well, let's bring it all back together. How should banks approach this, Sam? How would they work with Cherry Beckert? We can help our clients, and we have helped our clients in many different ways, you know, being strategic, being tactical um, across the whole model validation spectrum, um, validation, as well as model review, as well as the investigative end-to-end. Uh, -end. Um, typically, it requires us to look at it holistically and address gaps in data quality and governance and operating procedures and brainstorm with our client for opportunities for more innovative approaches, including automation and AI. Thank you both, Sam and Dan, for your insights.
And thank you to our audience for listening. As always, please like, share, and subscribe to the Risk and Accounting Advisory Podcast. And thanks again for listening. Please visit us at cbh.com forward slash risk to learn more. Thank you.